You're listening to the Revolution Ed Podcast, a show all about support, education, and advocacy for teachers. I'm your host, Katie Quick, licensed professional counselor, former classroom teacher, and national speaker on a mission to revolutionize teaching in America. Welcome back and thank you so much for joining us. This is Katie Quick and you are listening to the Revolution Ed podcast. And before we get into our show today, I just wanted to let you know about an incredible free event coming up for educators and I can't wait to tell you about it. On Saturday, December 5th, I am hosting a free virtual teacher self-care day and it's going to be full of incredible self-care workshops from yoga, meditation, nutrition, body image, fitness, relationships, and more. And we have an amazing lineup of presenters and workshop leaders who are volunteering their time because they love teachers and they want to support the work you're doing. Um, And not only do you get the great self-care workshops, but we have awesome prizes. So many people have been donating to this event. So the grand prize is a $500 gift card to Southwest Airlines. So you can take a trip, a much-deserved trip somewhere. We've got spa treatments, self-care goodies, and tons of other uh, great things to give away. So you can get your free tickets on my website at katiequick.com slash self-care day. And it takes about a minute, not even a full minute to get those tickets. So uh, share with your fellow educators, and I hope to see you there on December 5th. And uh, now I'm so excited about our guest today um, because the work he is doing in restorative justice and creating racial equity in the classroom is so needed and long overdue. So today we have with us George Santos and George has been a New York City educator for five years. He is a restorative justice coordinator and a special education teacher at a school in Brooklyn. He is part of the school's instructional leadership team, as well as the culture and equity team, which focuses on creating an anti-racist and equitable learning environment. He is also the content creator for the social media platform, Restoring Racial Justice, which I love. And he uses the content to inspire learning around race, racial inequities, social justice movements, and multicultural history. So welcome, George. We are so happy to have you today. Thank you, Katie, for having me. I really appreciate the work you're doing. Thank you. And, uh, you know, I've been following you for a while and really wanted to talk to you because of what you believe in. You know, you believe in building community and empowering student voices. Uh, You encourage social and emotional growth for students who are experiencing trauma instead of the traditional school disciplinary measures, uh, which I'm really excited to hear from you about today. And, you know, you also believe that education and restorative justice can help students examine social justice issues and become active citizens who impact their communities. Hell yes. Um, Like I said before, it's, it's just so long overdue and I'm excited to hear your background, your work and how educators who are listening today can, you know, really start to promote racial equity in their classrooms and schools. Um, So yeah, just tell us about yourself, George, and and the work you're doing, because it's so awesome. Yeah, so I'm a New York City teacher. I'm in a middle school out in Brooklyn. Uh, We have a a unique opportunity out there. we did launch the Integrating New York City Schools um, platform. So we have something called the Diversity uh, Plan for District 15, which means that about 52% of the seats in our schools are for low-income students, also students of color and students with disabilities. So we make sure that the diversity in our school represents the overall city of New York. So it's a unique place where I get to work with 
different demographics, social economical demographics um, from affluent to, to low class, black, Latino, Asian, white. So we have a, a really great diverse, and I do believe there's beauty and diversity, but it comes with a, a lot of work, right? Martin Luther King said, we don't wanna integrate into a burning house. So we wanna make sure that when we're doing this work, that we are providing safe spaces for students of color, for um, students that are marginalized and that have been disenfranchised in the school system. So some of the work that I do as a restorative justice coordinator is really trying to reshape the way we see discipline. You know, unfortunately, in our um, educational history, discipline has been seen as something that needs to be harsh, that needs to be, uh, you know, traumatic, right? It needs to instill fear in students not to do it again. Uh, and that kind of comes from like that Eurocentric Western philosophy of like punishment needs to be seen, right? And it needs to be felt and that's how it's gonna get across. The restorative justice method and the approach I'm taking is like, well, no, we need to acknowledge the traumas that our students have gone through, especially in America. When you look at racial trauma, when you look at social economic trauma, um, we need to acknowledge that and, and start supporting our students. So that you know, there's ways of having conversations, inviting students in, getting to know them, also breaking down that model of like, I'm the teacher, I'm the authority, I'm the gatekeeper of knowledge and you must respect me. And if you even look at me the wrong way, right? You're gonna get, you're gonna get detention or, or expelled or suspended. Breaking down that, that um, dynamic, which is difficult, right? Because students are coming from experiences that that's what they felt. But we, I, my goal is to create an equitable space for students, especially students of color, especially students that are, are marginalized and disenfranchised and hopefully provide them with the support for opportunity and for growth academically and social emotionally. I love this. I'm, I'm obsessed with you right now. This is so <laughs> important. Um, and it is, it, it changes everything. I did all of my teaching in Chicago public schools and about, I would say five years ago, SEL started to become mm -hmm. a thing. They started training us on restorative practices. And I know from my own personal experience in the classroom of becoming a restorative justice lead and teaching SEL, how impactful this is. And I think for, for our old school teachers who are of that old school mindset, it sounds a little bit backwards because we were all taught this way with the punitive you know, measures yeah. and the methods. But I mean, tell us a little bit about, about your experience, you know, really building these relationships and, you know, kind of steering away from, from those, those punitive ways of, of disciplining. Yeah. So, so my experience in school growing up, uh, I went to, uh, I was fortunate. I was able to go to a Catholic school um, growing up, unfortunately where I grew up um, in Corona, Queens, uh, schools are overpopulated. Um, and my parents just felt like I wasn't going to thrive there, unfortunately. Right. And it, and it sucks that a lot of parents have to feel that way and take the burden of sending their kids to a private or a Catholic school. Um, so for me, I didn't really enjoy middle school at all. I did not enjoy it at all. Um, I, I guess you can say I was an ESL because English was my second language, but the, the way it was communicated to me, I felt like I couldn't read, right? So it was frustrating. I hate re reading. Even till today, I don't like to read out loud. <laughs> like if we're at a PD and someone's like, hey, uh, who wants to read this? I'm the one that has my hand down. I'm like, I don't, I don't want to read, right? Because it's just that traumatic experience. And I always felt like, teachers kind of made me feel like I wasn't smart, 
right? And it was like a horrible feeling. And a majority of my teachers were white. I think we had one um, female black teacher um, who I love. She was like from the Caribbean and I, and I really uh, enjoyed her. But I was like pulled out of class a lot for like normal childlike behavior. And I think one of the biggest difficulties at that age, you're trying to find your identity. You're trying to find out who you are, where do you belong? And I just didn't feel supported by many of the educators at that time of helping them kind of help me navigate who am I becoming, right? And, and you know, so like, I, and, and I remember some traumatic experiences. Like I, I slouch when I sit down, right? I still do as an adult. And I remember uh, my fourth grade teacher putting textbooks on my head to balance it, to sit up straight. Right, which now we know would be a form of corporal punishment. Right, mm-hmm. I remember being pulled out of class and like placed, like stand in front of the wall in a corner and face the corner. Right, and it's like, man, like what message was that sending to me? Right, so I became frustrated, and, and I'll never forget this. And this is why I'm so passionate about um, education. I remember telling my principal to expel me. I didn't want to go there anymore. That's how unhappy I was. I legit sat down with my principal, told her, can you expel me? I don't want to go here no more. They called my mom up, my mom in tears, talking to me. My father spoke to me. And there was one educator, it was a male educator, an older gentleman, uh, Mr. Flynn. He sat down with me too. He talked to me. And they, my parents, along with him, they gave me affirmation. They believed in me. They were like, you have limitless potential. And I think like that's why as an educator, when I see my students, it doesn't matter how much they're struggling, doesn't matter how much like behavior, and I say it in quotations because behavior is, is subjective to you know someone's experience, right? When we see a student of color who's loud, it could just be a cultural aspect of who they are, right? So let's accept that and not be afraid and feel intimidated by students being loud. It's not a problem. It it's, could be excitement, right? When you share something cool with a warm up, and they're like, oh, and you're telling them, stop, 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 be quiet. You're like killing excitement. You're killing, it's, it's spirit killing, right? So when we're having these conversations, when I'm talking to students, I, I truly believe in them. And even when they're putting themselves down, I know that they're navigating their identity of who they want to become. So it's like in these restorative justice spaces, in these social emotional crew or advisory, areas we can have these conversations of being like hey who are you who who do you want to become i believe in you no matter what they say and i have students that you know they they have some tough tough um backgrounds and they're they're really discouraged by education and i don't give up on them ever i'm just like you know what like i get it and sometimes you just have to let them have their moments of vent and not say anything right? And just accept the fact that they're hurt and hurt with them, right? And that's a sense of that, that empathy growing. And I think that the more we work with them, the more we allow them to see that, you know, the real world is harsh, right? It's not a bubble, right? School is a simulation. This is where you learn. This is where you make mistakes. It's okay to mess up here. We won't traumatize you and discipline you in a way that is going to cause you to become angry and go onto the world and act out. This is a place that's safe, Right? And educators need to understand that. And this is where students start to understand their role in society. So allow them to, to take risks, allow them to be thinkers, to step up and hopefully impact their community. And I think that's important. Those conversations are, are so key. I, I love this. And I think the thing, I, the common thread that I'm hearing is, you know, talk to them, listen, ask questions, get so to know fun. them. It's like holding space for the child 
to be exactly who they are. And it's not your job to change them. It's your job to, you know, I'm almost hearing it's your job to allow them to be who they are. And, um, and you're providing that, just that support, that encouragement and asking the questions that, like you said, no one asked you until you were like, you know, this is ridiculous. You should just expel me. Right, right. And, and Paula Ferreira, you know, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, Pedagogy of Freedom, like he has so much literature. And, and if educators haven't read his work, they need to ASAP today, go out, Google him, get the books. It's even on PDF at this point because it's such an old book. But being the subject of learning, right? Being the subject of their environment is so important, not the object. And at many times, um, teachers, unfortunately, in the classroom treat them as they're the object, as if what they're teaching them doesn't have a direct impact on their students. Place them where they, they are the subject. Like this does have an impact on you, right? The elections has an impact on you. What do you think about this, right? Uh, climate change has an impact on you. What are you going to do to change that? And I think that's when students start taking that ownership and they're really like, you know what? I have a chance to change the world. My teachers believe in me. And if we're doing it at an early age, imagine when they're in college, imagine when they're in high school, imagine when they're adults, the, the motivation that they're gonna have to make their society better because that's all we want, a better society for all. Yes. It's a dream to think of every child just sort of unfolding into the person they're supposed to be because I'm always thinking, you know, in all of my teachings and my work, you know, every person has this unique gift to offer, but school can oftentimes oppress that and, and crush the dream and crush the spirit, as you've mentioned. And so then we are losing out on these incredible human beings who are here to make a difference and make an impact. I mean, I have the chills just talking about it because it's, right. it's, it's so what you're saying really, truly is it's simple. It's love. It's respect. Right. I mean, am I, am I hearing that right? It, it's, it's part of the restorative justice work. And I, I know like, there's the coin, right, of restorative justice, right? It's like the, the coin now, right? It's like the buzzword, but it's like, it, it's humanity, right? It's embracing humanity. It's embracing people for who they are, loving people. And, and that's the root of, of what we're doing. And, and obviously as educators, we're tasked with a lot. We wear many hats and we all know that. And teaching is one aspect of it, but our schools are a safe haven for children. And we have to make sure that that's what they are. <laughs> right? Because some of them go home and it's not the experiences that we as educators may have when we go home. So we have to understand that we want to provide a space where a student can express themselves, where a student can share. I had a student the other day tell me about um, skateboarding and he goes out with his older friends and he's like, you know, driving down hills. And I was like, ooh, a little scary there. And, but I was so engaged in what he was saying, because I don't skateboard. I was like, I, dude, I don't, I don't do that. You know, like I, I played basketball growing up. But then the coolest thing was at the end of our conversation, and this is, you know, we're, we're, we're hybrid. So this is when I was in school with them. He goes and he says, well, George, what did you do when you was 12 years old? And just the fact that he asked me that, mm -hmm. I was like, we're building a relationship here. We're building a connection. That's gonna go right into when I have to teach, when I'm like, all right, let's, let's transition to getting this work done. The fact that he sees me as a human being is important. And if educators aren't having those discussions because we don't want to be vulnerable and, and allow our students to see us as human beings, that's a problem because we are human beings. And when our students see that I have feelings, I had experiences, we may share common experiences as well. Then they'll start seeing like, oh, wow, I, I like this person. 
I, I, I can be this person or I can relate to this person. It's, it's no longer the figure that's up there because I, I know for a fact when I think of teachers, I thought of they're, you know, they're just teachers, they're just there. Like I would if you're really uncomfortable, I saw them in the street walking around. I'd just be like, what are they doing <laughs> out here? Like, I only want to see you in the classroom. Like, this is super weird. Um, and it's like we do have to dismantle that, that image of like, no, I'm not gonna talk to my kids about my personal life. My personal life is my personal life. Why? Why? Like, why if they're gonna share something personal about you? Maybe we should start sharing some personal stuff about ourselves to an extent, right? We do have to respect our boundaries, but if we do need to be vulnerable and we do need our students to see that we hurt just like them. And like, this is something that, you know, with all the trauma going around with COVID and our government and our country and, and, and the racial, um, you know, uneasiness of, of what's going on, they, they need to see that we hurt too. And I think they appreciate that. A hundred percent. And I think this makes me think about how a lot of the responsibility is going to lie with the educator doing some of their own work and, you know, sort of dismantling what perceptions they have about, you know, being a teacher. And you said earlier, you're talking about, you know, this sort of authoritarian, you know, presence in the classroom, but, but starting to, you know, look at, look within ourselves, like, you know, be curious. Why do I feel like I, I can't be vulnerable and just ask, start asking yourself some of these questions and be curious as the, as the educator, you know, if, if you're not having these relationships or you're feeling scared to, you know, start to do that, that deep dive work. I think that is, I think that's where it starts. Yeah. And when you think about examining privilege and understanding discrimination, understanding how oppression works and how that shows up in the classroom. And that is something that schools can do. That is something that teachers can do. And I do think that that is a self-reflective journey. Like no one can walk, uh, you know, no one can teach you how to do that. That's something that you have to be willing to do and put in the work. Definitely. And, you know, this, I'd like to kind of go a little bit more towards the racial equity piece here Mm -hmm. and talk about what that looks like so that educators can understand, you know, the work that they do need to do, because I think this is a huge part of the work that you're doing and the work that until this work is truly done and in school and classrooms are equitable for all students, we are not finished. There is always going to be more work. So if you can start by just telling us a little bit about what racial equity looks like in the classroom. Yeah, so we have to understand like what is racial equity? What what is that about? So it's about implementing structures where we see great disparities, especially among race. For example, if if you look at our criminal justice system or education system, you'll see great disparities, right? With mass incarceration, or if you look at academic data, which people always love to introduce, if you look at dropout rates, et cetera. So if we're seeing this great disparity impacting people of color, then we need to start talking about it. We can't just, it can no longer be the elephant in the room. We need to talk about how do we actively combat these structures that are hurting black people and are hurting Latino people are hurting indigenous people in our communities, right? Or any other marginalized group for that matter, right? Even if you think about the LGBT community and how schools impact a student that wants to come out, right? Do they feel safe to do that? So we really have to think about that. We have to look at data around, academic achievement. And we have to understand that when we're looking at this data, our students are fully capable. The problem is opportunity. 
There's no such thing as an academic gap. It is an opportunity gap. And we need to understand that. Educators need to understand it. So what do we do, right? How do we combat it? Well, are students seeing themselves in curriculum? Are we introducing methods that highlight the experiences of students of color and embraces their culture? Are we doing that? Well, um, when we start thinking about that and talking about racial equity, we need educators to examine themselves, examine their biases. And when I say biases, that's a nicer way of saying racist ideas because biases, implicit bias are racist ideas mm -hmm. that educators may have that they're bringing, especially, and we all know this in education, we have um, white suburban educators going into urban inner cities with students of color and they may not have firsthand experiences with students of color. How does that dynamic trickle down? Especially when the perception of a, of a white person in regards to how they see a person of color comes from media, which is dangerous because media does not represent people of color in, their, in the way that they actually are. Right, there's a lot of, of negative stereotypes in media. So there needs to be that self-analysis of understanding and, and doing a lot of unlearning about the, the students that you're working with if you're a, a white educator. And then most importantly, we wanna teach students to learn about thinking. I, I'm really, I've been like really big on this critical thinking process. Sometimes we get so stuck on, oh, they need to, to learn how to get the right answer, the right answer, the right answer. And sometimes what I love and what I'm really appreciating right now with these like the hybrid and I know I have like a smaller group of kids is being able to sit with a kid and teach them a skill and just giving them some time to think. Like I'll just sit there with them and I'm like, go ahead, think about it. Because, and I'm looking at them and they're thinking and then they come up with a response. And I'm like, I just, I'm teaching that student how to think. I'm teaching that student to be a critical thinker by giving them that time, not stressing them about, do you have the right answer is the right answer? And not saying, no, that's wrong. No, it's like, think about it for a second. What do you think? Read that, read that article, put it in your own words. Talk to me about it. Go ahead. When I'm hearing you say like, you're allowing them to get comfortable with that discomfort of thinking and being right. in that, like I, the, the space of, I don't know. And right. I think kids shut down and you've probably seen this, you know, when we want the answer so fast, they shut down because they, they're not used to being in that space. It's too uncomfortable, but I love that. Again, you're holding space for them. Just let them think, let them make mistakes. Um, you know, mathematics, the most scariest thing, right? Everybody's like, I hate math. I hate math. <laughs> why, do, why do children, why do adults hate math? Because it makes us feel dumb. Let's call it what it is. Because when we can't get the right answer, we feel dumb. What I've been telling people lately is don't worry about the answer being right or wrong. Appreciate the process of thinking. You treat it like a puzzle. You try to put those pieces together. The pieces doesn't put together and try something else. That's life right? We make mistakes. We do wrong things. We try to make it right. We try to fix it. Something didn't work the first time. We try a different way. That's math. We can't get fixated on a right or wrong answer. We have to get focused on this process of thinking, this process of being a critical thinker, of thinking about different ways that can work. And, and I think that the more educators focus on that, it will bring out um, this idea of, of you know, we, we all know like there's no right or wrong way, right, of teaching education. Nobody has a, a book out that says this is gonna work for all kids. So we really have to think about like, well, what does one student need? How can I support them in that? And allow them this critical thinking process, allow them to be creative. And I think that will start dismantling this idea of an education system that benefits one group of people. 
right? Because now you're opening it up to being like, you know what? Bring in your creativity, bring in your artistic ability, bring in your thoughts. Don't worry about being wrong. You're not gonna be scrutinized for being wrong. Take chances, that's it. And let's see what happens, let's make it work. Allow students to feel comfortable. They're gonna get only better as they, as they get older. Yeah, I have tears in my eyes as we're talking because I think, I mean, George, it's just, it's, this is everything. To me, this is the way that we do change the world. Mm -hmm. And it starts with the educator examining themselves and, and check what triggers do I have? What's preventing me from holding the space like you're talking about? What's preventing me from, you know, building the relationship? Because again, everything you're telling me, everything I'm hearing is going back to that relationship building. Right. And, and that's what it is, right? We yearn, we're, as human beings, we yearn relationships. We, we you know, like, I, I'm going to quote Drake, right? I'm going to quote Drake. Uh, no one wants to be 70 and alone, right? And, and, and it's, a funny, it's a funny quote, but it's the truth. No one wants to be alone. We all, we all yearn for companionship, for other human beings. Uh, we're empathetic beings, right? Even the idea of, of social emotional learning is kind of funny. We're social emotional beings. It's who we are. It's only natural. So um, I'm glad that we're talking about it in school, but this is who we are. Uh, we have to continue being human <laughs> at the end of the day. Definitely. Definitely. And I think, I think this practice will save lives because isolation is, it's, I think that's what's making me feel so emotional right now is thinking about all the kids who feel so alone and don't feel seen. And just to have one person see you you're, even if it's just your teacher, if everything else in the world sucks, if things suck in your family and it's just hard out there, but if your teacher sees you, you could save that child's life, you know? And I just, um, it, it's really choking me up because it's so, it's, a, it's, it's like you said, humanity. It's a simple act of humanity. Yeah, that's, that's really what it is. So what are, this all sounds amazing, you know, we all need to be doing this, but what, what are, let's talk about the barriers here that are preventing us as a society, as an educational system from achieving this racial equity, building these relationships, what's in our way? Yes, I mean, so one of the, the number one things is teachers that don't believe that schools are racist or that a racist system even exists, um, that don't believe racism plays a role in a student's achievement abilities and opportunities. That's a major, barrier, um, which is dangerous, very dangerous if you think about it, because that teacher doesn't believe that there are um, obstacles that these students need to overcome, especially students of color. When we think about also standardized testing, the way, uh, if, you, if you look at the history of standardized testing, the way they originated was, um, you know, military scientists developed tests to keep immigrants out of the military, right, and people of color. This is the same scientists, same people that designed the SATs that we still take today, right? Um, and, and that all trickles down to like state exams and et cetera. And if you think about like COVID now kind of saying, oh, we, don't, we can't take these exams, right? Because you can't assess a kid under this trauma. Well, what about the traumas that students of color have been experiencing their whole lives? Is that not valid? So COVID hits, it's like, okay, let's not give out the SATs right? Because now everybody's under trauma, but our communities have been under trauma and they're still in trauma. And yet they're expected to perform the same as their counterpeers who are white, who may be coming from affluent areas, who may not have to, to deal with some of the um, economic and racial traumas, 
right? So these are things that we have to, to acknowledge in education as, as things that are not equitable. When we look at disciplinary policies, you have zero tolerance still happening in schools. And it's a, that, that language, zero tolerance, is a direct language from the criminal justice system, right? Zero tolerance, we're going to have zero tolerance, lock them up, throw away the keys. So the parallels of you know, criminal justice and education, it's unfortunate that they work hand in hand. Someone asked me which um, degree that I, my, which master's degree do I feel benefits me more in education, the, the special education or the criminal, criminology one? I said, unfortunately, the criminology one because they, they work so hand in hand. And if you're able to understand the social economic factors that impact students, then you're better prepared to deal with them as, as people and to understand um, what obstacles they're trying to overcome. So these are some of the barriers. And, and, you know, you, and you see that it's, schools are a direct link. You talk about the school to prison pipeline and it's a big moneymaker that unfortunately in a capitalistic system, people are not gonna talk about it because like, this is a big, big moneymaker. So schools are funneling this prison system. And until we also talk about um, abolishing prisons and, and changing that, there's always gonna be people that are not really gonna care about our schools transforming and changing. Uh, another barrier is not having enough representation in curriculum. And that was one thing growing up, uh, you know, I wasn't engaged in reading certain books and stuff like that because it just didn't represent who I was. And to this day, when I think back to my childhood, the books that stand out, um, there was one book called The Color of Water, where the main character was a, a black child and his mother was, um, a, was a, a white woman. And, and he asked mom, you know, what color is God? And she says he's the color of water. And, and I, I don't know why that book stands out to me, but I do believe it was because it was a, a kid of color that um, was the main character. And I think that that kind of played a role and also diving into race as well at a young age and trying to understand that. If we, another barrier is this, and this is something that is interesting to look at too. You look at teacher salaries, what teachers are paid in our country and why that is. Well, it's because women were the first educators in our country and they weren't valued enough to be paid a, a decent wage. And this is still 2020 we don't have decent paying salaries for teachers with multiple master's degrees, with doctorate degrees, and education still doesn't um, pay them what they deserve. And it's because our society started off as a racist and sexist country that is still the same. And, and uh, the work we're doing is to try to change that. But when you start diving into discrimination and understanding that, you start to see, oh, this is why we need racial equity. This is why we need equity period, because our, our country, unfortunately, did start off as a, a white patriarchal society. And if America is going to live up to the ideals of, of being a country of immigrants, right, and a country that in reality was built um, off the labor of people of color, right, indigenous and, and, and black people, then we have to do the work to make sure that their presence is felt in this country and that they do have the proper, you know, rights, the proper justice that our country preaches, right? When we say the Pledge of Allegiance or anything else that we say, we need to talk about how is that fair to everyone? And, and I think that anybody who's doing this work understands that there is a lot of injustice going on. Definitely. Uh, we have our work cut out for us for sure. And I think acknowledging that and kind of rolling up our sleeves right now is really just, uh, I think a good first step, like even just acknowledging we have work to do right now 
It is not tomorrow, not next week, now, and starting with ourselves and really, really seeing what am I bringing into my classroom? What is filtering out through my mouth and my views that could potentially be harmful and dangerous and perpetuate, um, you know, the lack of equity that we do have. So, uh, George, I would love to kind of wrap things up with, you know, you giving us some, you know, any, any words of advice, any wisdom, you know, wisdom that you might have for educators right now, let's say, you know, there is an, an individual educator who really wants to do this work. Perhaps their school is not really on board. You know, we've all kind of been in those environments that maybe are toxic and not, not supportive and not on board. Um, what can what can one teacher do right now to start promoting the racial equity and start disrupting racism in their classroom now? Yeah, so some of the first things that they're going to want to do is that self-analysis, right? That self-reflection on understanding their privileges, understanding how discrimination and the oppressive ways show up in their classroom that they may be doing, right? And, and not aware. Um, that work has to be done individually, and hopefully you can start inviting your community of educators to join you in that work, right? Especially like during PD times and stuff like that. And if you're getting a little bit of backlash from administration or other educators trying to find allies who do support the work that you do, trying to create affinity groups, especially if educators of color are in a school and they feel like they don't have that support, trying to find allies where you can create an affinity group, a safe space to have these conversations to engage in these discussions and little by little start bringing people in to these spaces. Uh, we also have to think about the, the history of education, what education started as in this country. And when you think about that, its origins, unfortunately, were to purify students of evil. And I say that in quotations because that's what they called it. Um, we have to look about, we have to investigate it and examine how education also played a role in the lives of people of color when you think about indigenous people, when you think about enslaved African-Americans, like it, they were referred to as savages, right? Like this is in our history. This is what they referred to and they needed to be um, indoctrinated with humanity, right? Violently. And we have to see that America does have a violent history that has infiltrated our school disciplines, that has infiltrated um, you know, our, our criminal justice system. And the more we dive into our history, the more we start to understand how that has trickled down to um, our, our schools and our classrooms and the dynamics of the teacher and student. That's a lot of work that we have to do and it, it doesn't happen overnight. It, it's, it's a, I think it's a life process, it's a life journey that we all have to do um, because school is a descendant of that. And if you don't understand, you can't change that. So we have to, we have to do this racial equity work you know, within ourselves, with the, our, our colleagues and then start to see how does it look like in the classroom. Um, we, we, we have to embrace students and it goes back to that, that aspect of love. We have to incorporate different cultures. We have to embrace different identities. We have to value our students' humanity. That is super important. I, I truly believe that like uh, students are, are, are amazing thinkers and I think they're better thinkers than us because their imaginations are, are way better than as we get older, we kind of lose that. And if we can use the way they think we can engage them in ways that they can learn by in incorporating things that inspires them. Like find out what inspires your students, what motivates your students, how, how do they wanna learn? And if you haven't had those discussions with students, let's do that. What are they interested in? Like my students are interested in anime. I don't know why, I think it's so weird. <laughs> They're like, they love those cartoons and, and legit, 
during our independent reading, they were like, oh, I don't want to read. I was like, do me a favor. I'll let you watch anime, but turn off the volume and put the captions on. And then after you'll tell me all about it, I would love to hear about it. That's reading, reading comprehension skills. It's a graphic novel that moves, right? So they were like, oh, cool. They got so excited. Engage them in their learning, meet them where they, where, where you know they're going to thrive. Why would I want to give them a boring book and be like, here, read about this book where they're like, I don't care about that book. So um, we, we definitely have to continue this reflective work. Um, we have to be anti-racist constantly. There is no like, hey, I'm anti-racist now. That doesn't exist. This is a continuous work. We're operating in a racist system. Um, so we have to continue to see and, and investigate, well, what is true education? What is it that we want from, for our students? And I think that um, we have to investigate. Do we want our students to just be, you know, uh, in this like industrial revolution, industrial revolution education style where you're just turning them out to be great workers for a wealthy class? Or do we want them and hope for them where education is the goal to teach them to become a better human being, teach them to be a, a thinker, teach them to be moral, teach them to make smart decisions. This is the opportunity where they can make as much mistakes in school. And I think that if we do that, they, they will become stewards of true justice. They will um, impact their humanity, right? And it's, it, we're in a very powerful position where we are with students that where if we model what it is to be a good human being, we're inspiring them. And, and, that, and hopefully we, we push that into the world. And I do believe that that's our role. Um, one educator can make a difference. I really believe that. I believe that too. And I'm totally in tears over here. And just, I feel so lucky to have gotten the opportunity to talk with you. And I think every school needs to have you come speak. And I think we need to get this out. We need to get this word out because this is important. This is everything. This matters. We have to level the playing field. So um, where can teachers and schools uh, find you? How can they work with you? Just give us some of your, your info so, so everybody can, can look you up. Of course. Uh, well, my website is Jorge Santos, so J-O-R-G-E-S-A-N-T-O-S dot site, as in S-I-T-E. And I'm very heavy on the social media, so my platform at Restoring uh, Racial Justice, you can find me there. Uh, I think also if you Google my name and put teacher my information should pop up. I think if you Google me, not 100% sure, but uh, I'm not hard to find. My LinkedIn and everything is out there. I'm always working with anybody that reaches out. I believe like this work is something that we all do as a whole. Um, and if I can support in any way, of course, I, I definitely willing to, to help out. And I appreciate you having me on the show, Kate. I think that what you're doing is super important. Holding these conversations, we need these spaces, especially right now with everything going on where we are living in a virtual world, I think that uh, we have time to sit down and really process everything. So the, the work you're doing is amazing. Thank you for having me so much. Oh my gosh, you are so, so welcome. And I encourage everyone to um, follow Restoring Racial Justice on Instagram and look up George, see if you, if you guys need extra help or training, or I know you do coaching and consultation, things like yes. that for schools. So please look him up. It is amazing what he's doing. And I feel honored to have talked to you today. And I, we will definitely be staying in touch. I'm going to be following you and continuing to look at the wonderful work that you're doing and, and also continue to do the work myself and, you know, with my, uh, you know, staff of teachers at my school that I work with. So I think this is, this has been wonderful. I appreciate you and you. wish you the best. Your kids are so lucky to have you, George. Thank you again. Thank you.
Thank you so much, Katie. Appreciate it. Thanks again for joining me for this episode of the Revolution Ed Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, I invite you to subscribe, rate, and share, as well as head on over to my website, katiequick.com, where you can connect to the teacher membership community, resources, and more. We'll see you next time.